Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail from Sporting Hero... Putting the foot down, Batubay, nobody in front of him, Mansour coming across... ...to charity boxer extraordinaire... ...picks up the pace and the heaviness of the punch, there's that uppercut again by Batubay... ...to Paso Doble prodigy... ...winner of Dancing with the Stars for 2019 is... ...Manu... ...to... Zero. Almost two years after he was arrested in a police drug sting, Manu Vatuvai has today pleaded guilty to importing methamphetamine. Convicted and sentenced to three years, seven months in prison. Just five years after his retirement, the legendary rugby league player Manu Vatuvai has been sentenced to three and a half years imprisonment for importing methamphetamine. The latest in a list of athletes as long as your arm who've experienced a precipitous fall from grace after their playing days ended. So today on the podcast, how do you go from being on top of the world, a role model for your fans and community, earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, to being convicted on drugs charges? And are sporting bodies failing in their duty of care to help prep their athletes, their employees, for life off the field? Jamie Wall is a freelance sports writer and diehard Warriors fan, bless him. I asked him to tell me a bit about Manu Vatuve, the player. Big is the right word to describe him, both in stature and in reputation. He was a long-standing member of the Warriors. He played his entire, or almost his entire career with them. He was the only NRL club that he, he played for, and... He was seen as really part of the furniture in, in a Warriors team that probably underperformed, has underperformed in its, in its lifetime, but he was a consistent try scorer. He was known as a big blockbusting winger who the crowd would sort of get on the edge of their seats when he got the ball, uh, when he'd run it back from a kick or something, and um, he had the nickname of the Beast. And was really well liked uh, as well, a real cult cult figure in, in the Warriors set up. We're here with the 2014 uh, favourite son, Manu Vadivai. Manu, are you proud? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm just humbled and, and honoured to get to receive the award. Um, you know, there were a lot of nominees and um, awesome players. And uh, played many times for the New Zealand team as well, was a big part of that. Uh, played, played a part in some really famous uh, victories for the Kiwis over the Kangaroos. And not stop. A dream has come true. The unthinkable has happened. And the Kiwis are on top of the world at long last. It's uh, so, yeah, he would, he would definitely be in contention for being in the top you know, New Zealand team of all time. Uh, he, he, was, he was that good and that impressive. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, he just sort of didn't. His career didn't really get the end that it that it probably should have. It was a joint investigation between the police and customs. Catherine Owen is a senior court reporter for Stuff. In court on on Wednesday, it was described as unsophisticated offending, and it was unsophisticated. They weren't very secretive about importing methamphetamine. Packages and parcels were coming through from Africa. South America to Lopini Mafi, which is Manu Vatavai's older brother. He was the head of the syndicate as such. They were contacting a person called Big Boss, who was in Africa, and packages would come through 
and phone data as well linked Manu Vatavai to the offending through through videos and photographs like there'd be videos on on Maffi's phone of the pair opening imports which were there were small quantities of methamphetamine they weren't like the big bus which we've seen recently of 500 kilos it was small small amounts it was in hair ties and disguise like that but police found that they've been doing it for a number of months. They began intercepting the imports. So what that means is that they get the imports at the at the border essentially and got rid of some of the methamphetamine and replaced it with other material that looks like methamphetamine but left some methamphetamine in it and put special um, chemicals on, on the packages. So if, if they opened the packages, they'd be seen and under a UV light, sorry, um, you can tell that they've come into contact with that. What happened here was as well, Manu Vatavai's older brother, Lopini Mafi, he became unwell during this period in, in October 2019 and, and had to be hospitalised for a period. And the police say, and the Crown case still was, that Manu Vatavai then stepped in and, and was in charge and was in, is involving other people and telling other people to to pick up packages and contacting the DHL customer call centre, inquiring about an import. And then a package arrived from India and another defendant called and sent a text, text messages and to arrange the pickup. And there was numerous text messages and phone calls involved with Manu Vasavai and others involved in the offending. It wasn't until the early hours of November 26, back in 2019, Vasavai was texting another person about a package that was that was meant to arrive. And during that time, customs, as I mentioned before, customs had removed most of that methamphetamine and replaced all but five grams with fake drugs. And that chemical marking powder called lysopodium was then found on Vatavai and Muffy's skin when when police came with a search warrant. And there they also found digital scales in, in Vatavai's room empty bag containing white residue, money counters, a box containing multiple empty little plastic bags, um, and a TV on the wall showing a live feed from outside the house. Now, that's about as smoking gun as you can get, but Vatuve chose to fight the charges, insisting he wasn't guilty. Unusual, given the weight of evidence against him, but he's the defendant. It's his prerogative. But that wasn't the only unusual thing about this case. Early on in the piece, Vatuve was granted interim name suppression, but his name came out anyway. Days before suppression was due to lapse, he outed himself on Instagram. just wanted to get something off my chest, um, something that's been holding me down for a while now. Um, and I'd rather you guys hear it for myself um, rather than anyone else in the media. But um, in 2019, I was charged with um, importation, position and supply of methamphetamine. Is that as unusual as it kind of sounds from the outside? Like, was that absolutely perplexing to you? Yes, absolutely. Um, it was It was very bizarre. You don't usually have that. Usually there'll be, um, I'm thinking here, and I mean, Joseph Parker was never charged with this offending. But when he stuff fought to name him in regards to he was connected to some pre- proceedings involving drug charges and for him he decided he he had a lawyer he had his lawyer 
send out a statement, he sent out a statement, and there was a, there was a stand-up, you know, naming him in connection to these charges. Whereas one of us survived recorded a video and put his face to it, and that was it, uploaded on a Sunday night. And, um, yeah, it was, quite, it was quite bizarre. I've never seen that before. <laughs> what was the sentence, and what did the judge actually have to say about this case? Judge Moses, Judge Jonathan Moses sentenced him to a term of imprisonment of three years and seven months um, for the representative charge of importing methamphetamine. And, you know, Judge Moses detailed how in 2019, the the 18 months prior to that, Vasavai had obviously gone undergone a big life change with losing his, his career from professional sport, from, you know, well-respected, a legend in, in the league community. And and then it also, he'd gone into boxing and then that hadn't worked out for him because there was a cyst found on his brain. So he was he was left in this limbo of not knowing what to do and, and there was a, a real lack of any future goals, I guess. And his marriage was, was breaking down as well. So he had that going on personally. And during that time, he, he was staying more at the family home. And this is, we heard that this is kind of when he became involved in the offending as, and there was a sense of familial obligation and loyalty to his brother to help him. When you look at the, particularly the sporting career of an athlete, do you ever feel sympathy for athletes? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do, because I think what a lot of people don't realise is that the regular person will have a professional career, whether you're a, a, a lawyer or a, or a draftsman or a, I don't know, architect or anything, is that you spend the first decade and a half out of training to be that 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 profession, learning, uh, and and getting to a point where you're going to be earning as much as you possibly can. You wouldn't you wouldn't start earning top dollar until you sort of in your late thirties. For a sports person, especially a rugby or rugby league player. Uh, you go straight into your highest earning bracket by the time you're about 23. And it's generally all over by the time you're 30. It's a really different life experience for those guys compared to what it is for the rest of us. And there is a ton of pressure on you to put stuff away and and, and make sure you're set up for when your career is going to be over because there's really not that many avenues you can transition to straight from rugby in that industry. You know, there's coaching and there's media, uh, but those jobs are pretty few and far between. Um, and so to put that pressure on someone who's in the early 20s to start go, okay, you need to sort of think about the entire rest of your life right now uh, is, is actually really difficult. And um, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm quite supportive of athletes getting paid as, uh, as much as they possibly can because they've only got a really short shelf life. And the other thing is, is that could be over at any time. Uh, you know, you could walk out on the field tomorrow and blow your knee out and that's it. Mm. And all of that training, all of that, um, that dedication and all of also what you haven't been doing, like going to university or, or whatever, counts for nothing because now all of a sudden you're just a guy with a busted knee who's not qualified to do anything. What sorts of challenges do these guys face, both professionally in terms of that future planning, but also personally in terms of the, the people around you and the importance of having good people around you? Talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, the good people around you thing is, is, is something that comes up a lot um, in discussions about athlete welfare 
and especially in, in rugby and league. Um, and it's something that's obviously been draws from uh, the experience in the United States, uh, where you have professional sports leagues like the NBA and the NFL that are dominated by African-American players who a lot of times come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And in New Zealand, we kind of have a microcosm of that in terms of the Pacifica and Māori representation in our teams, which are massively overrepresented. If you look at the state of um, Super Rugby teams and Warriors, mm. uh, and a lot of those guys are coming from lower-class backgrounds, large families, and from family setups that uh, sort of expect them to pass on the, all the wealth that they're earning uh, onto family members. Um, and it's something that I've talked to a few of these guys about, and um, it's it's a really tricky situation because it is the culture that they have, but at the same time they know that if they just give everything away, uh, they're not going to be left with anything um, at the end. So it's a really it's a really difficult one to to kind of address, uh, especially for guys who know that you know know full well that their shelf life could only be a matter of uh, years. I follow English football, as you know, follow English football pretty closely and European football more broadly, and it's a different ballpark in terms of the amount of money that athletes earn. But the way that football works now, it, when you sign a professional contract, if it's a, if it's a reasonably sized professional contract, immediately that club has a whole infrastructure of future-proofing behind it. They will put you in touch with financial advisors, careers advisors, wealth managers. What are the support structures like in professional sport in New Zealand? Yeah, well, I think what you've just mentioned really speaks to the galactic difference there is between football and everything else. Sports have a really robust uh, player association, unionisation infrastructure behind them. It's the one industry where the employees can really, really wield some power if they decide to just not turn up for work. And so I think in New Zealand, uh, certainly from my experience from rugby, is that it varies from team to team. Um, and region to region, but it's definitely there. Probably not on the same sort of scale that uh, you've just you've just mentioned. Um, there are pathways definitely uh, to get into coaching, but like I said before, there's only so many of those jobs uh, available. But I think, given what I know of, say, a professional rugby player, the amount of downtime they have, they would definitely be getting um, encouraged to use that to set themselves up later in life, like. Uh, like perhaps going to university or learning a trade or or something like that, um, because it's either that or they will just probably feel towards the end of career, their career, oh man, I probably should have done something with that time. Mm. I mean, also, I think the thing with uh, Manu's situation is that it was just obviously a perfect storm of of bad bad things happening to him. I mentioned earlier they didn't really quite get the end of the career that a guy of his stature deserved. He, he, you know, he signed with a Super League club in England, didn't perform as well as he would have wanted to, and then COVID happened and ended up getting cut, and then, yeah, there was a relationship breakdown there, and I think it was just a combination of all of those events that led to to what happened. Um, I, you know, I can't speak too much to, about the Warriors and what sort of support they would have left him with, but it is worth mentioning that they were def- they weren't the last club that he was with, so it's not really up to them to set him up uh, for the rest of his rest of his life. 
Um, so I, you know, from what I understand, like his behavior and relationship with that club was all, was always, you know, really, really good. Uh, and from what I understand of the Warriors that, that they, they do have a pretty robust athlete welfare program in place. So I think that it's just, unfortunately, just a series of bad events that have culminated in some very bad decisions. It's an interesting one, eh? Cause like listening to you talk about this and I, I think I, f- I feel a similar way, a sense of sadness about it and almost pity, but it also occurs to me that we shouldn't be too sympathetic here. Meth is a scourge on society. These guys were importing meth. They directly contributed to this kind of problem. It doesn't really matter that he's a beloved athlete. He should be condemned and he should be punished just as anyone else would. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, you, you can't say that he didn't know what he was getting himself into because the ramifications of getting into dealing meth in New Zealand are pretty well known and obviously very harsh. It's not cannabis or anything. It is methamphetamine and we can't, I think lots of people forget that. And it is only a small amount of methamphetamine, but that that can do a whole lot of destruction. And Judge Moses again said this in in court, and I, we hear it over and over again in methamphetamine sentencing. Mm. You know, methamphetamine is it's such a devastating drug, not just on the people who are offending, but the people they supply it to, the communities, families, the country. It's a horrendous drug, and it just causes so much destruction. And that can't be forgotten here. And he aided in that destruction in the community. Mm. And that, yeah, that really can't be forgotten, I don't think. I mean, I'm, I personally feel reasonably sympathetic um, towards him because reading the court notes, it was it was said that it was a very unsophisticated operation. Mm. So it sounds like someone had a contact somewhere. It's not like they were master criminals or anything. And obviously they weren't because it, it got busted pretty easily. Mm. Uh, so it's not like he'd been doing this for years and finally got caught. It was just one big slip-up that was just so obvious that the cops found out sort of straight away. There's, uh, I'm sure that you know the quote that I'm about to read you, the George Best quote. I, I spent a lot of money, he, he said, on booze, women and fast cars, and I squandered the rest. It's a funny quote. It's very on brand for him. But I guess, you know, another way of looking at that is here's this guy, this beautiful man, this amazingly talented man. He brought joy to millions of people. He made tens of millions of dollars. And he ended up dying at the age of 59. He was jaundiced. He was begging people on his deathbed not to live the life that he lived. And it strikes me that the lot of athletes is oftentimes is actually very, very sad. The sad ones are. Uh, but, but those are the ones that we... we we find fascinating, I guess, because it it, it, pull, it kind of peels back the curtain on what we think is is going on. You know, like all we see is these guys out there scoring tries or hitting sixes or 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 whatever, and they're leading these these unbelievable lifestyles. And then all of a sudden, you find out like not only do you have very relatable problems, they're so bad that it's it's what's actually taking your life right now. And then you realise like man, this is a cautionary tale uh, that's going on here. Um, and, and I think that's why that's why these sort of stories garner so much much interest. I, I mean, I could probably pull out a dozen guys right now who I've talked to over the last year, rugby players, for example, who are living perfectly happy lives uh, at home with their wives and kids and uh, you know, doing reasonably well for themselves, but no one really wants to hear about that. You, it's just scandal, just like everything else. So, and this is the latest one in it. And yeah, you're right. The George Best story is a, a tragic one, but uh, it, it's probably not one that um, 
it's not the last of its kind. Yeah. And I guess also it's not the standard. These things, as you say, are exceptional and we find them fascinating because they're exceptional, but it's a short career as an athlete, but you can earn a lot of money and you can invest that wisely and live your life happily ever after. And most of the people who are professional athletes end up doing that. That's correct. Uh, but I think that one thing we really need to think about when you when you take all that into account is who are the ones who are slipping through the cracks? You know, what is what are the demographics uh, that we're talking about? Um, and it'll tell you quite a lot about society. Like we've seen a couple of guys uh, just last week pass away. The former All Black and rugby league player Vainga Tuigamala has died aged 52, popularly known as Inga the Winger. Tuigamala was a fan favourite. Sad news for rugby with the death of another unforgettable Pacific Island star, Joely Vendiri. This afternoon, for- well before their time, well before their time, and and to me it just immediately says we have an issue with. Pacifica men and health problems because you've also got guys like you know Jonah Lomu passed away at 40 Dylan Meeker 36 and for all the the other ones we know about so there's a whole bunch of other guys out there in the community who are passing away well before their time as well so you know hopefully those stories help people understand that there's a disparity out there in, in, in society that probably needs to be addressed and I guess in a roundabout way talking about Manu's situation is that it's pretty unlikely this would have happened had he not grown up in South Auckland. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not not reason to, to to say that. Um, I think there's a lot of social factors that have contributed to him being incarcerated right now. I have hope that he'll reform his life and be like a a figure that, uh, in time is a cautionary tale but he'll be better for it and he'll be the sort of guy who can hopefully go around and talk to other professional athletes young guys coming through to the Warriors and, and, and the All Blacks or whatever and just say like don't, don't make the mistakes I did um, I, I have faith in him to be able to do that because I've met him I, you know I've, I've dealt with him and he's a nice guy he is he is uh, and I think he will redeem himself I have faith in that that's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Katrin Owen and Jamie Wall. Matewa. <laughs>